The following is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters, two microphones, and one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Brake, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. All right, it is game week after a bye week. It's ETSU at Sanford. We're going to talk to Blake Gardner, the play-by-play guy for the Sanford Bulldogs on ESPN+. Plus, We're going to go over some games that Keith finds interesting. Uh, I'll just comment on whatever he finds interesting. But, uh, yeah, we'll sure. And between now and the next 45 minutes, I will try to figure out uh, what uh, upset the thing I'm supposed to pick uh, is called. So I'll try to figure that out while we – Meander through this Thursday podcast uh, leading up to ETSU. Sanford, 1 o'clock kick, 11.30 coverage on the Buccaneers Sports Hour. Myself, Mark Hudson, Robert Harper will be on site. Uh, Don Kilmer makes a reappearance. He'll be here at the studio with the kids, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he'll take care of Carter Jones and then also Clay. Who? Carter Jones. Carter Jones. Who? The cousin of Mike Jones. All right. Let's talk about this uh, contest coming up. And the one thing, doing the research, I may have mentioned a little bit on Tuesday, but Tyler Rondell has some innocuous numbers against the Sanford Bulldogs. Um, right at 60% completion percentage. He's averaging 289 yards a game. The last two games, he's thrown for 291 and 389 a career high. Nine touchdowns, one interception, eight touchdown passes the last two games. His number one target, no shock, Will Huzzy. Eight catches in both the last two games, over 100 yards the last two games. He had uh, four touchdowns in those two games, three in last year. So uh, all that being said is for whatever reason, sometimes it's about matchups, right? We talk about this a lot in basketball. For whatever reason, there's a guy that just plays better against the team and shoots better. Is this a situation, I guess I posed the question to you earlier, a situation where just whatever Sanford does defensively is right up the alley of what Tyler Rydell likes to work against? I guess. I mean, I don't really know that their secondary is all that good. Um, And teams have also been able to run the ball against them to fair effect. Short yarded situations, Chattanooga was able to do what they needed to do. They were able to execute. Um, Western Carolina ran for 284. And Auburn ran for, I think, 220 or thereabouts. It averaged out to 204 yards Per game against Division One opponents allowed on the ground. That's a lot. You get you get north of 200 rushing yards as a team. That's a lot. I would be very curious to see just in general how Sanford's defense looks after getting their butts handed to them a couple of times by a couple of teams that did not they did not expect at the beginning of the year that that would happen. Uh, this is clearly a situation where a lot of the guys that they brought in via the portal, I talked about on Tuesday, didn't really land the way that last year's group did when they went heavy transfer portal. And it shows the danger of doing that to try to build a roster in this modern landscape of college sports that we're in. If you go all in on the portal – then you get what the portal 
yields to you. And I could have told you that was not a good idea because Jacksonville State was doing it before it was cool, and they were all over the place. You know, one year they went to Frisco. The next year they got bounced in the second round by unseeded Youngstown State. And the year after that they got shut out at home by Kennesaw. And then I think the year after that they missed the playoffs entirely. So there is a, there, there's a risk to that, and I think Sanford has walked headfirst into that risk. Now, offensively, it's a lot of the same personnel, uh, but you asked about the defense and the matchup for Tyler Rydell, and I think as long as Rydell has a healthy Will Huzzy, a, a healthy uh, Xavier Gardetz, and possibly an 85 to 90% Enosh Carter, I don't think he's going to have any issues finding an open receiver out there against Sanford on Saturday afternoon. But the biggest difference, the defense that had all those transfers last year and transfers this year gave up a lot of yards. The biggest difference was they were stingy in the red zone and they forced a lot of turnovers. This year they're not stingy in the red zone and they've not really forced any turnovers. And so that's really, I think, the two biggest differences for Sanford's defense. Uh, just looking at it, because last year I think they had 20-plus grad transfers. This year it seems like it's 27. I don't remember the exact last season. But this season it's 27 grad transfers. And sometimes you get folks that uh, hired guns that are able to kind of work together and they figure it all out. And sometimes you don't, right? That's kind of the example I guess you use with Jacksonville State. But so far it hasn't quite worked out. Offensively, if we flip the script just a little bit, Michael Harris has already thrown as many interceptions as he did a year ago four through you know, four games as opposed to the 13 games. And we discussed this, that the fourth one was not his fault. No. That was on the, that was on the receiver missing a block and, and just running around instead inexplicably. And that, that's a tough one to handle. And the first one was one of those that hit the receiver and a defensive person and it ping-ponged. And sometimes, like, when you have magical years, those things go your way, right? They, like, it's not intercepted. Or a guy doesn't miss a block. But in that particular game, it was the same thing. I go to a point where offensively the line I – mean, they've given up 11 sacks already. And that doesn't include the quarterback hurries. That doesn't include the flushed out of the pocket, as we talked about, because if he gains a yard, again, it doesn't really count as any of that. Right. So he's had a hard time, I think, being comfortable. So if ETSU early can make him uncomfortable, I think that bodes well. The issue is going to be can they make him feel uncomfortable before he maybe goes two straight scoring drives down the field and is, I don't know, making up nine for 10, 11 for 12, something like that quickly, and he's already in a groove and it could be tough to, to get him out of that groove. I think it's going to be a situation where ETSU is going to have to try to take air out of the ball because that's what most people do, just like what Western did. ETSU's got to limit the number of possessions that Sanford has. And for the Bulldogs, it's just a matter of not really, you know, the number of possessions sometimes is what do they do in those possessions. But, yes, they would like more possessions. They want, you know, 12, 13 possessions, you know, get down the field, try to get points up on the board, you know, get the ball back, you know, rinse, repeat type deal. And they've had a hard time doing that. And part of the reason they have a hard time doing that is flipping back to the defense. Teams are converting in Southern Conference play, the two apples to apples, 56% on third down against Sanford's defense. Oy. And so – that's, uh, you know, this is one of those deals where ETSU's worst in FCS football, 12%. So something has to give on that front. That, that, that would be, if you were to pin me down right to second and say pick two or three things would be the key to the game, the first thing would have to be for me third down conversion. Can ETSU take advantage of Sanford not being good on third down? And for Sanford, is if we've not been good on third down, neither is ETSU. Can we stop them on third down? 
and get the ball back to the offense. Well, ETSU's defense got Austin P in uh, what, 11 or 12 third down situations and a handful of fourth down situations, which I think they can. They were like two for four or three for four on fourth down, Austin P was. But they were able to put Austin P in bad situations, and Austin P was able to get out of them. And I, I kind of wonder if Sanford hasn't dealt with the same situation where they can get teams behind schedule, but they can't keep them there. Um, and that comes back to your secondary. Obviously, Cortland Marsh is a, is a veteran back there, but I don't know that they have just a ton of returning experience. I mean, um, there's, there's not really a ton that's been made of, of in terms of plays in the pass coverage that wasn't made by a, a linebacker. So, um, you know, uh, Dante Pollard uh, was at Akron. You know, came in and, and has been you know, the other corner opposite Marsh. Uh, I don't really know a whole lot about what they have at safety, but um, they haven't exactly just jumped off the page at you as, as major playmakers and disruptors. And then even then, the pass rush has not been quite as aggressive as it was last year. Joe Mira is still there. He's still their leading guy. He's still their number one guy. But Noah Martin's not getting the quarterback the way that he did last year. And uh, Johnny Johnson's not getting to the quarterback. Jamal Thompson, these guys aren't as productive as maybe they were a season ago when everybody just seemed to have all kinds of success. And, and I wonder if that's not impacted their ability to keep get teams behind schedule and keep them off the football field. And offensively, uh, yeah, Michael Hires has taken a ton of hits. And I, I don't think all of those hits are his fault. A lot of people will tell you that sacks are a quarterback stat because the quarterback needs to get the ball out to avoid taking a negative play. I, I say yes, but it's contextual. It depends on the situation. If, if he's at the end of a three-step three, three drop and somebody's in his grill, that's not his fault. Somebody missed an assignment. So in that case, and, and Hires has been forced to extend plays, he's been forced to get out of the pocket, and he's still taking some hits at the end of some plays, but he has also at times just been swarmed by a blitzer that was not picked up by a running back or by a tight end uh, or by a wide receiver or anybody. Uh, that nobody got picked up and you get a free runner in on the quarterback. That is something that I think ETSU can utilize. If, if Sanford has poor eye discipline at the line of scrimmage pre-snap, and ETSU getting DeAndre Davis back, this is important because Davis is experienced in the scheme and he understands disguise really, really well, maybe more than somebody like Teddy Wilson, who throughout his entire career, good football player, but is kind of a C-ball, hit-ball type of guy. Davis has more experience out there, and Davis has uh, a better understanding as he is a veteran player at this level of what to do to disguise pressure and how to help disguise pressure from other parts of the field when you know it's going to be coming from somewhere else, make it look like it's coming from you, make them adjust to take you away. Those are things that could help ETSU here, and they're going to need all the help they can get in man coverage because Mike Jenkins and... um, uh, Javon Henderson have had it rough, and there's not really a lot of other options. You know, Josh Trice is not healthy. He has not been cleared for contact, and Khalil Anderson is limited in, in what he can do. Uh, so you're it, and and the, they've got to find other ways to help them out. You can play a little bit of cover three. You can play a little bit of cover two, but they'll just throw underneath it, 
But if playing that cover two can buy you the time when Hires is a quarterback looking to take deep shots, if cover two buys you enough time for the rush to get home, I think you got to do it. So there, there are some things, that, and I know Billy Taylor is going to hear that, and he's just going to tear his hair out. Uh, but he, uh, you know, this, this is an opportunity for ETSU to really kind of test some different stuff to help those corners out to give them a chance to at least get their legs under them and build some confidence. And I do think this is a team, despite the fact that Sanford has been able to move the ball really well between the 20s, I think this is a team that you can build some confidence against as a defense. I think the big thing, again, early ETSU against Jacksonville State was able to keep them off the field the first couple possessions as far as not scoring. Right. They're going to have to try to do that because usually you play a team of that speed. We've talked about this, you know, we listen to the podcast uh, for whatever, you know, four or five years ago. I've been doing it. You listen to the coaches' shows. It's very difficult for a team to simulate the speed in which it happens because you either have to run two offenses on and off the field all the time, always running a play and going, just hard to do, and it seems like ETSU in years past been able to settle down. Last year was interesting because Sanford didn't necessarily go warp speed, except for a couple of opponents that they felt like it was their advantage. One of those opponents was ETSU. Yes. And the last couple of years, the warp speed has given ETSU all kinds of fits. So if you're Sanford, you know why would we change what we're doing? We're going to go as fast as humanly possible. We're going to go. If ETSU's defense, you know, how quickly can they try to get a stop early in the game because I think it's twofold. Confidence for them, considering they've been taking a couple of bludgeonings on the road. And then also because Sanford hasn't had great success uh, so far this year. They had the opening drive against Western Carolina. They scored, and then they didn't score uh, again from there. And then same thing, Sanford took a couple drives against Chattanooga before they finally got on the board. Then they got cooking yeah. because into the first half they score, start second half they score. Kind of feel like okay, they've, they've kind of turned a corner. My thing for ETSU is can they get to the quarterback number one, number two? Can they get off the field early to try to take a little bit uh, or put a little bit of doubt into Sanford of oh boy here we go again type uh, as opposed to they get a couple scores early like oh yeah same ETSU team we're going to bang fifty five on. Yeah, that's kind of the, the, the barometer. We'll, we'll know what kind of game this is going to be very quickly. We'll know what kind of, if this is going to be another track meet or if this is going to be a game where ETSU is able to control the ball. And now you can play keep away a little bit more because the clock rules have changed. Um, now, some people would argue that that just makes teams more inclined to run tempo. And I was talking to Billy Taylor about this today, and I really feel like the, the trend of going to these ultra – fast offenses is kind of dangerous for football players. And we saw what the NCAA was willing to do uh, to cut blocking, right? They were willing to sacrifice the triple option and and part of the charm of the the diversity of scheme, which is part of the charm of college football. They were willing to sacrifice that on the altar of player safety. Are they willing to do the same thing with this, this tempo stuff? Because at some point, like, it, it, it takes away the spirit of the game, first of all. But also, um, it's just not fun to watch. I want to have a breather between plays. I don't need to constantly be watching. It's, there's, there's this idea that football has to be constant action like basketball. If I want to watch basketball, I will go watch a freaking basketball game. 
I don't want to watch that on when I'm on when I'm watching a football field. I enjoy both. They should remain very different. I don't see a reason for this. And on top of that, when defenses are misaligned, that's when injuries happen. And not just cramps, but serious stuff, non-contact stuff. Guy gets blown over, get, hits the ground hard because he gets pancaked because he's not in the right spot, and he messes up a shoulder. Like this is this is the kind of stuff where not allowing the defense to even kind of sort of get lined up really hurts the players, but it also hurts the product. And I wonder how long we are going to see this go unchecked before somebody steps in and says, hey, tempo's not safe, it's not good TV, let's let's do something to rein it in. That's my, t- I, I don't, I don't, I, I've come out against a lot of things. I've come out against week zero games. Uh, I've come out against uh, tempo offense. There's some other things that I've, I've railed against on, on the pod just since the start of the season. I don't know. There's been a couple things. but Oh, uh, the cut blocking rules, yeah, because, um, you know, I love you know triple option forever. But, yeah, I think it came out last show about you flip-flopping on a pick, but you give it back to me. Yeah, I figured, you know, th- things you've got to miss with. Uh, yes. Okay. You did. Penalties, uh, double-digit penalties a couple times for Sanford this year, and then special teams. They are generally one of the best special teams in the league, and right now they are dead last in punting average at 33 yards a punt. Yikes. Um, still pretty good in the return game with Chandler Smith, and, and we're going to talk to Blake Gardner about this, but the fact that Smith had a punt return for a touchdown was called back, so we're going to get uh, in that Chattanooga game, which is certainly a big momentum swing, but they've had a ton of penalties special teams. Yep. They're not very good at punting. A little bit of an unproven kicker, so we'll, we'll get his thoughts maybe on that, but I do feel like ETSU one of their strengths, I know they gave a punt return last, year for, uh, last game for a touchdown, but one of their strengths I think is special teams, and ETSU, there was a conscious effort because of how bad ETSU was penalties a year ago. They're now, I think, second in the league for least penalized or least, least penalized yards. I'm not sure about the number of penalties, but as far as yards per game, penalties Whereas Sanford giving up about 65, 70 yards of penalties, the Bucks are out about 40. I mean, that could be hidden 30 yards there. You add in some special teams, that could be another area that that might play into ETSU's favor. And with uh, Carter and Gardetz back there returning punts, they've been pretty explosive. If you're kicking the ball short and they can get you another 10, 12 yards on a return, you set up a pretty good field position if you can get Sanford off the football field. And they're experimenting with Tommy Witten on uh, kick return, too, this week. I know Tony Quez will probably get the call, and maybe the up back will be Tommy, but they did yeah. switch those a couple different times just to see. Because obviously the top end speed for Tommy Witten is up there. Yeah, it's going to be a little higher than it is for Tony Quez, but um, I'm, I would be excited about all of that. I think that, that that presents an opportunity for ETSU, but it's an opportunity that the offense has to cash in on. And unfortunately, the last couple weeks, we haven't seen the offense cash in on those opportunities. So, now that Tyler Rydell's back, that was kind of the talk, right? That was that was the talking point as well. It's their backup quarterback. You know, it's Barron. Barron is the backup quarterback, and he is not – there's going to be a noticeable drop-off in the offensive sufficiency. Okay, well, that excuse is now gone. What does Tyler Rydell do in this scheme – how does he move the ball down the field against like-for-like competition? This is not a, a, a glorified FCS team like Jacksonville State was. And, honestly, they had FBS size up front anyway. But this is not JSU. This is a 
a conference foe, same ostensible resources, same ostensible scholarships, same ostensible talent level, what does this offense do? That will be a major, major point of observation and discussion. Probably, well, I mean, in, in this day and age, probably by the end of the second quarter. And, and apparently at the end of practice yesterday, Stephen Scott gave a pretty spirited speech about how many opportunities left uh, for certain players to prove themselves to play. Uh, to the point of like, hey guys, I don't think any of us are going to the NFL if we take care of our injury. Maybe, but you know, let's be honest, you're probably not. We don't have that many opportunities left, he was speaking. And for himself and a lot of the guys that are out of eligibility at the end of this year, like, hey, we got eight opportunities now. Uh, we can either choose to swing how this goes or we can accept it. And certainly judging by a few of the players that told me about uh, Stephen's speech, it was basically, you know, hey, I, I'm giving everything I got. I need you to give me everything. You know, so we'll see if that, if that helps in, in play too. Because both teams are at a crossroads. Right, Sanford 0-2 coming off everything they did. ETSU's been in that boat, right? Just a year ago, the, the script is exactly flipped to where it was. ETSU 8-0, lose North Coast State in the quarterfinals. Sanford 8-0, lose North Coast State in the quarterfinals. Both start 0-2. Where do you go from there? Does Sanford fall to 0-3? Or do they right the ship? Or is ETSU, hey, we've, we've taken all the footballs from the, the first three games and buried them and burned them and all that fun stuff. We've got new footballs and we're starting a new season and we're going to see what we can do in conference play. And this is the fourth time Sanford and TCU have opened Southern Conference play with each other since the Big Eight Max is 2016, which is also a little bit of an oddity. But, you know, ETSU has had uh, some success in one or two of the last three. Uh, Sanford obviously winning last year. And last time Sanford lost back-to-back conference games. They lost ETSU to Chattanooga. If they were to lose back-to-back, it would be Chattanooga and then ETSU. So I don't know some symmetry there uh, one way or another. But uh, I don't know about symmetry. I do know about uh, Blake. Gardner? Let's talk to Gardner. He just thought to ETSU. guest that uh, we talked about earlier in the podcast, the voice of the Sanford Bulldogs on ESPN Plus, Blake Gardner joins us, and uh, Blake, I'm just going to jump right into it. Obviously, ETSU, a couple years ago, similar boat, right? They go 8-0 in SoCon play, host a playoff game in the round of 16, win that, go to Fargo, North Dakota, take on the Bisons, they lose to North Dakota State in the quarterfinals. A lot of momentum going in the next year, and all of a sudden ETSU drops the first two conference games. Same eerily situation for Samford, right? 8-0, all the things I just said, lost quarterfinal, and now they find themselves 0-2. What has been the biggest difference so far in your eyes in last year's Bulldogs team and this year's Bulldogs squad? Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. I think the difference from this year so far compared to last year is just Um, A lack of consistency on both sides of the football. I mean, there's been self-inflicted wounds in each of the first two conference matchups Sanford has had. I mean, last week against Chattanooga, double-digit penalties. Um, First drive of the game for the Mox offense, you give up a big play and a touchdown. First drive of the game for Sanford, the first pass hits hits the receiver in the numbers, bounces out, linebacker picks it out of thin air, 
you're down 14 nothing inside of the game's first three minutes. So Sanford has kind of dug themselves some holes um, at times here through the first couple of conference games. And that, that level of just every play consistency that they had last year um, has evaded them for whatever reason so far this year. I mean, they've been behind the sticks. They've put their offense under a lot of duress. Their defense, which was kind of known as, I think, one of the top 20 defenses in FCS last year in not giving up explosive plays, has given up some explosive plays early and is not generating the same amount of turnovers um, that they did a season ago, whereas the offense – um, has already been tagged with more interceptions so far through the first four games this year than they had all of last year. So uh, it's just it's been a mix of mistakes and a lack of consistency that has kind of plagued Stanford and has not allowed them to find the same rhythm so far this year that they had the bulk of last season. So if you were to make, kind of you know crystal ball it here, the the big things I'm hearing is defense not creating as much turnovers, given a lot of explosive plays, but offensively maybe a little bit more shocking the fact that they've not been able to. They're still putting up numbers, but not to the numbers that they are. It seems like Michael Hires is getting hit and sacked more than last year. You mentioned the interception numbers already. Uh, it just seems like that the struggles more so uh, kind of coincide with each, right? Offense isn't doing as much as last year, and defense obviously isn't doing as much as last year. Yeah, I think the defense so far has taken a bit of a step back um, from last year, which, I mean, there are a lot of new pieces, right? A lot of the success of Sanford's defense a year ago, uh, hinged upon a bunch of the grad transfers they brought in. They meshed well together. They had success, especially in the red zone. Um, so far this year, that side of the ball has gotten off to a, diff- a bit of a slow start, which has put more pressure on the offense. And as you said, I mean, if you look at the offensive numbers, it's not like Sanford's not moving the football, right? They're averaging over 400 yards a game, 16 touchdowns, almost six yards of play. Like, they have moved the ball pretty consistently. It has just been – that these bad plays that have really either put them behind the eight ball, put them behind the chains. I mean, I think at one point uh, last week, deep into the second half, calling that Sanford Chattanooga game, you look at it, and I think the average third down distance faced by the Mox offense was around four to five yards, and the average third down faced by Sanford's offense was like nine, which tells you for a team that put up over 420 yards of offense, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't have third consistently sticking yourself in third and longs like Sanford did, whether it was through sacks, negative plays. Um, again, the double-digit penalties certainly didn't help either. Um, so, yeah, just a, a lack of down-to-down consistency is, has hurt Sanford and, and not allowed them to put up points the same way they did a year ago. While they might still be moving the football, as you would expect the Sanford offense to do, um, they've plagued themselves in and around the red area um, and have had drives stall out without putting up the same amount of points that they did um, compared to last season. Defensively, I, I, I'm very curious about the state of affairs up front because Western Carolina steamrolled this team for 284 yards on the ground. That was a real eye-opener, I think, for a lot of people. When, when we've said more about Western maybe than Sanford, but uh, Chattanooga seemed like they held them a little bit better, but still you get in short-yarded situations, and the Mox gave it to a limb forward, and he was able to get yardage. Um, did is there improvement up front? What do you see as the issue that has allowed some of the teams, particularly the D1 opponents for the Bulldogs, to have success running the football against them? Yeah, it's a good question, right? I mean, it's hard to judge the Auburn game. The Western Carolina game certainly was a, a bit of a surprise given the amount of success Western had on the ground. I thought, based on what I saw, and we'll catch up with Sanford's coaches tomorrow, I thought their front four against front, really front three most of the time for Sanford. I thought they played great against Lynn Ford and Chattanooga on the ground for the most part. I mean, there weren't that many explosive plays to be had 
in the run game for the Mocs last week. Now, granted, you mentioned in short yardage, yeah, I mean, it's tough to stop a lone forward and, and some of the guys the Mocs have up front. Really, the concern last week more was the secondary. I mean, Chase Artopius had a big day um, against kind of a retooled and rebuilt Sanford secondary um, and had a lot more success through the air than I think a lot of people expected. So um, Sanford's got a few questions to ask to be asked about, about the back end of the defense right now. How do they prevent these explosive plays um, that have happened over the past couple of SoCon games that, that didn't really happen by and large last year and can – um, this secondary kind of kind of mesh together a little bit better and and creates um, a little bit more cohesion at the back end than what we saw a week ago. Sandos mentioned this, Michael Hires, who I got the chance to get to know at Media Day, a great guy. A sound, he almost sounds like a young Chris Hatcher in, in, in some ways, um, just the way that he, he talks about football, the way he talks about this offense, the way he talks about his teammates. Uh, he sounds like a, like a coach on the field. Uh, but he has been taking a lot of hits, as Jay alluded to. And he took a lot against Western. He took a few more against Chad. I think he got hurried four times and sacked two twice. Um, I think he's right. But regardless, he's not had uh, necessarily the most fun he's ever had sitting in the pocket back there. How much of the sacks and the hits he's taken are on the quarterback? How much of it is the offensive line? How much of it is defense is just being able to cover Sanford's receivers down the field? I think it's a little bit of the latter two that you kind of mentioned there. I think this this offensive line has had its struggles in the sense that there's been a couple of key mistakes in pass pro that um, has allowed Michael to take a few more hits than he probably would have preferred and the staff would probably prefer as well. Um, and I think there's there's been an element of, I mean, Chattanooga's got one of the best, if not the best, front fours um, in the league. I thought Western Carolina's defensive line was solid. Um, and they were they were very good at timing when to bring pressure and when not to bring it. Um, the thing that kind of surprised me most about the Western Carolina game is they played a lot of man at the back end and got away with it. Um, Sanford has typically been known to punish punish teams who play a lot of man with big plays down the field. That didn't necessarily happen um, against the Catamounts. And then credit to Chattanooga. I mean, they, they gave up yards, um, but they were able to force Sanford into enough second and long and third and long obvious pass play situations where Hires was going to have to sit back in the pocket and let things develop downfield, and it allowed their pass rush to kind of get after um, the Sanford offensive line. I mean, Bruton um, and Person are probably two of the best edge guys in the league, and the fact that they play on the same team is pretty nice for Chattanooga. But, again, that defense was able to force Sanford into enough long down and distance situations that I think it allowed them to generate pressure um, and maybe force Michael off his spot a little bit more than he would have preferred. Uh, we're talking to Blake Gardner. He's going to handle the uh, play-by-play duties for ETSU at Sanford Saturday, uh, 1 o'clock uh, Eastern, noon Central. Blake, let me ask you this, because I know Coach Hatcher has kind of said before a useless statistic for him is time of possession. Now, I know it's because, you know, they work fast, they want to score under two minutes, all that, but what is important to him is the number of possessions. And you look at the two Southern Conference games, it's going a little bit more apples to apples. In the second half, four possessions against Western Carolina. They had five against Chattanooga. I think that's a number that he would like to see change. It's not necessarily, again, time of possession. It's just the number of possessions. And right now, they're having trouble getting the football in the second half. Yeah, for sure. I, I would totally agree. And I, I think the thing that haunts them the most about that Chattanooga game is, yeah, they had a poor first half. They didn't get any stops. The offense got stopped a couple times. But – they scored on the last possession of the first half. They got the ball to start the second half. They scored again. Now you're thinking, okay, this is a game. 
Chattanooga misses the field goal. You get the ball back, a chance to make it a one-possession game and a crucial fumble. And so you fumble, and then Chattanooga gets another field goal. The next drive out, you get stopped on a fourth and four in plus territory, and Chattanooga goes and scores again, and there's the game. So, yeah, I think there's there's a matter of, of being a bit more efficient with the possessions that you do get for Sanford, but also can this defense force a few more takeaways and generate those one or two extra possessions um, that Sanford has lacked so far in the second half? Because, I mean, if you and as you've kind of seen so far the early part of this 2023 season, if you can run the ball, if you can consistently complete passes inbounds and move the chains for first downs, you can play keep away a little bit more efficiently uh, here in 2023 with the new clock rules and the clock not stopping on first down. So for Sanford, I mean, can they – can they generate that extra takeaway or two in the second half against ETSU? Or can you be more efficient with the offensive touches um, that you do get in the second half that, that allow your offense to, to generate more points than they have so far through the first month of the season? Okay, well, let's, let's transition a little bit to this Saturday's matchup, ETSU and Sanford. The two teams, the last two games, almost 2,400 yards, over 200 points combined between the two. It has been shootout galore. Have you worked on variations of touchdown calls that you're probably going to have to have uh, coming up Saturday? It's funny. I actually went back and watched the highlights from that game yesterday because I was like, man, what happened in this game? I mean, the combined, like, 90 points, the over-under was through the number, like, basically by halftime in that game. Um, yeah, I have, have definitely worked on some variations. I've definitely tried to figure out, okay, who, who are the big play threats going to come from on both sides, and is this game – going to look like uh, going to look like that game from last year. I know I saw Coach Quarles say he hopes if it's a shootout, he hopes it's ETSU doing a little bit more of the shooting. But uh, yeah, I think I think for the Bucks, if they were able to score that many points again, I think they would be thrilled. And I think, heck, if Sanford was able to score that many points again, I think they'd be happy with the, their offensive output as well. The return game that's been with uh, Chandler Smith, and you go back to the, the, the Washington days, they've always seemed to have had uh, you know, a guy that can be explosive. And Chandler Smith actually had the unfortunate uh, luck, I guess, of having a touchdown called back on a punt return. But special teams, yep. a little bit different look for Sanford. I think they've always had, uh, you know, when you look at the kicking game, the punting, the field goal kicking, even the return game, they have been sort of that upper echelon. That's been much more of a question mark this year. And I think some of that hidden yardage stuff has certainly cost them in games. Yeah, new kicker uh, who's only really had a couple of opportunities, so not a ton to say about Wilson Bieberstock. As you mentioned, Chandler Smith early in that Chattanooga game, house to punt return, uh, gets called back for holding penalty. Again, one of the many uh, self-inflicted wounds for Sanford there. Uh, but, yeah, Will Thornley in the punting game have, have been kind of up and down so far to start the year, kind of struggled against Auburn. Uh, we're a little bit better against Chattanooga. Some of that, I think, is on him his first year in in college as a punter. I think some of that, um, Coach Hatcher's kind of alluded to, uh, their, their blocking in front of him hasn't always been buttoned up, so it's it's forced uh, Will Thorley, the Sanford punter, to get rid of the football a little bit more uh, quickly than he would like. So um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they can pick up a little bit more of that hidden yardage here. Uh, Chandler Smith has, has been really good as a punt returner so far through the first month. That's kind of been the special team's bright spot for Sanford. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly going to be going to be something to watch, uh, considering I think ETSU um, and what Nate Brackett has been able to do in the punting game so far this year probably probably gives them an edge uh, coming into the weekend. What challenges do you think uh, Sanford has when facing this ETSU team? I think a lot of it. Let's we'll start with Sanford's defense. I think a lot of it is there's just not a ton of tape on on Tyler Rydell, assuming he's QB one and back this week. Um, so, kind of, what are you getting? 
with this offense that's led by Rydell, at least this 2023 version. You've got plenty to work off from last year. Um, but what does this Buccaneers offense look like with Rydell? I mean, you've only got, what, like a half worth of tape, and then um, the past couple of weeks have obviously been backups in there. So on the defensive side, what is, what does this offense, this version, look like with Rydell? How does Sanford generate takeaways, generate stops, um, whether it's stopping the running game, guys like Borish and Irby on the ground, or do you have an answer against against Will Huzzy, who had a monster game last year, um, or Naj Carter, who it looks like will be back this week for ETSU, um, and then for Sanford offensively, can you eliminate some of the some of the self-inflicted wounds, some of the mistakes? Can you cut down the penalties? Can you consistently generate positive yardage on first and second down that helps you avoid third down altogether, or leaves you third and short? Because I mean, this is a Sanford offense last year that set basically a SoCon record for number of times they moved the chains, most first downs in the league. So can they find that rhythm, that get that pace going, avoid third downs? Um, and if you're not generating those big explosive plays, maybe you're generating five, six, seven yards a clip on early downs um, that allows you to keep the chains moving, keep things moving, um, and put this ETSU defense on their heels. Because once that tempo gets going, once once the Stanford offense finds a rhythm, it gets really hard to stop. Um, and I think I saw George Quarles allude to that um, a little bit as well at his presser back on Monday. So can they find that rhythm early and put this ETSU defense on the heels? I think that's going to be an early thing to watch um, on Saturday for the Sanford offense. Well, Blake, we appreciate the time today. Appreciate the knowledge. And uh, I'll see you on Saturday, my friend. Looking forward to it, man. Got an early kick in Birmingham. Going to be fun. Appreciate the time, guys. The best games of the week, or at least the ones these two dorks want to watch. It's the pick six. You think that up all by yourself? All right. Sandos needs a big week to make a comeback. So we picked some really weird games that he has a better chance of getting right. Uh, 50-yard line, Eastern Kentucky at North Alabama. Massey says 67% chance for EKU to get the road dub. Projected final score of 35-28. So, depending on which Southern Conference school you're a fan of, is who you want to win that game. So if you're a Western Carolina fan, you would like EKU to win. If you are a uh, C-school fan, then you would certainly would like North Alabama Try to pick up a few victories, and as I'm not a C-School fan, then EKU makes it simple for me uh, to help out Western Carolina. But in fairness, I do think EKU is slightly better, and I think they're better on yeah. both sides of the line of scrimmage. I, I would agree that I think McKinney is the best quarterback in the matchup. Uh, I, the EKU's been in some wild ones. They've been on the wrong end of a wild one against Western Carolina. They're on the right end of a wild one against Southeast Missouri State, where they basically just punked. Semo into calling a timeout with seconds remaining by trying to run their field goal unit out there in a fire drill because Semo had 12 guys on the field. And so if they, it would have been a five-yard penalty. Uh, so they uh, they decided, well, we're just going to dare you to call a timeout. And I thought that was pretty bold, and I, I respected that. So uh, I, I'm going to go with EKU. This is, this is finally the game where against an FCS opponent, they look like the Eastern Kentucky. I thought this team could be at the beginning of the year. They played two FBS games to start the year. Kind of tough to get a gauge on a team when they do that. But uh, this is a team that I think is finally in a spot where we really see them show what they've got for UAC conference play. Speaking of the UAC, 40-yard line, number 24 Central Arkansas at Southern Utah. And this one 
made the, the pick six because I saw something from um, the uh, – I think it was from the, the coaches show um, that it, it, it showed up on Central Arkansas social media. Delane Fitzgerald, I believe, the head coach of, um, of, of Southern Utah, said that their mascot was a large cat, Central Arkansas's. The UCA's mascot was a large cat. UCA's mascot is a bear. He said there was a large cat at midfield. And so they rebranded as the Cats. And I think just kind of as a, as a stunt, they had some like duct tape that went over uh, bears on their uniform and put cats. And the Cats for a helmet. And I thought that was amusing. But uh, Massey also says that this could be a pretty competitive game out in Cedar City, 57% in favor of the Bears, and 31-28 projected final score. So I also saw this as a popular kind of under-the-radar upset pick by a couple of national writers that had mentioned just a few different things about Southern Utah, maybe have a little bit of a, uh, some matchup uh, that would favor them with Justin Miller, who's you know kind of been up and down this year. He's had a couple games where he's thrown three touchdown passes, and also had a game where he threw three interceptions. So a little bit of back and forth. You know, sometimes when you see, and this is one of those where I was like, hey, maybe maybe I could take a flyer on Southern Utah. But then when a couple people have predicted that, sometimes I'm weary of can it be that easy of a pick. So I'm going to go Central Arkansas, just looking at some of the teams that they've played, some of the scores. Again, everything's a little different, but they take care of the football better. They are plus six in the turnover margin. Southern Utah is minus two, and I feel like it could come down to turnovers. So Central Arkansas will force a few turnovers and pick up a win. I am very intrigued by this Thunderbirds team because they've had some close. They had a close call with Arizona State, who's not that great. They had a close call with UC Davis, who I think is I think is pretty good. Uh, and then they blew out Western Illinois the way that a Missouri Valley team would blow out Western Illinois at home. I wonder if this is this is a moment where they really feel like they can they can get something going, but I I just can't bring myself to do it. I can't bring myself to pick the Thunderbirds until they earn it. I'll, I'm going to take the Bears, uh, and we'll uh, we'll see how this one shakes out. I'm very intrigued to watch it late. It's eight o'clock kick, so should be one that we get a chance to watch a good portion of after our broadcast days are done. But uh, give, give me the Bears here on the road to handle their business, or I guess the Cats. If, if they win the game, do they have to lean into the Cats thing? I feel like this is how you get random, random different animal mascots like War Eagle. This is the genesis of something like that. And so UCA almost has to win the football game for the sake of poetic justice. 30-yard line, number 21, Youngstown State at Northern Iowa. Uh, Northern Iowa, not off to the greatest start this year. But Massey still says 71% UNI wins it at the Unidome and a 28-21 projected final score. Well, I think the biggest issue right now and concern for Northern Iowa is that Theo Day, four touchdowns, five interceptions uh, so far this season. He's got to take care of the football a little bit better. Had trouble running the football. Um, yes, they have just really 
struggled on the ground game. Youngstown State's, you know, both teams are coming off a bye. I thought maybe I could catch, you know, maybe a, an anomaly with one team off a bye and two weeks to prepare. But both like teams. nine of the nine, ba- nine Valley teams had right, bye weeks. Right, right, right. Which I forgot that you said that. Um, I think you said that Tuesday, didn't you? you yeah, said that yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. A, ton of them, a ton of them won. You know, I don't listen to you. So, um, and you look at Youngstown. Well, that's mutual. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, they play Valparaiso and Robert zero idea about Youngstown State and what exactly they bring to the table. And I guess you could kind of look at Northern Iowa and go, okay, well, they went to Iowa State and lost, and that was a kind of a popular upset special. Weber State got doubled up 34-17 and then go to Idaho State and win. But again, Idaho State's not particularly that great either. So right. this is a game I really I, I want to go Northern Iowa, but is it too early in the year for them to rattle off all the wins? Theo Day, at some point, I believe, is a better quarterback than four touchdowns, five interceptions, and I think he's going to be able to turn it around. Youngstown has played, obviously, a top-five FBS team in Ohio State, and then they played two teams that aren't very good. So, it's one of those where I almost would like to flip a quarter or have something that would just I could look at and go, okay, I feel good about this team because of this or this, I'm going to go Northern Iowa at home. Theo Day is going to figure it out, not throw an interception, and they're going to squeak out a 24-23. Interesting. I do think Youngstown, and, and again, the numbers are skewed because they played two teams that they should run the ball very well against. I do think Youngstown has developed an identity that means we're going to run the football at a very high level under Doug Phillips. And when you have a back and a line that can control the line of scrimmage, that's really been the biggest issue for Northern Iowa. I don't think Day is the problem. I think Northern Iowa's inability to to control the line of scrimmage comes back to haunt them as Valley play begins. And as difficult as it is to go to that place and win, it is one of the weirdest venues in the Valley. I think Youngstown State's going to make it happen. I, I can afford to take a little risk here. Give me the Penguins. Give me the Gwins to win this one. Uh, and the 30-yard line, number eight, William & Mary at Elon. Doesn't sound like a spicy matchup, but Massey says William and Mary, 23-21, a 53% chance to win this game on the road. And for Elon, it's, it's been a tell of two different, you know, games. The first two, you lose to Wake Forest, I think that's respectable. And they lost to Gardner-Webb, which is a little bit of a head-scratcher for me. Then they knock off North Carolina a by a lot. Campbell has been better this year than what they've had because they haven't had injuries at the quarterback position, and they went to Campbell. William and Mary has been good. They've obviously four and zero. They've had you know a couple of games where I thought maybe they would steamroll people more, and they have. But the long and short of it is they are holding teams defensively. They beat Campbell, common opponent, giving up twenty four to Campbell, but outscored them 34-24 as opposed to Elon's twenty eight thirty four. Then they, they I think struggle Wofford. 23-6, although we think Wofford pretty decent defensively. Charleston Southern, 15-7. Yeah. We just saw Western roll up 1,000 yards or whatever it was. And in a pretty good main team, or a decent main team, uh, 28-3. So, uh, 
sold on William and Mary. I'm not sold on them as an elite team. If this is the front runner of the CAA, I'm not convinced. When you only score 15 on Chuck South, you only score 23 on Wofford as a supposed top five team. I don't buy that that's a top five team. I buy that it's, a, it's not a bad team. But I don't think they're as good as people say they are, and this is their, uh, this is a road, this is the road test for them, right? This is like the road game for them. They've got Virginia next week, a game that's UVA is probably going to be 0 and 5. They're going to be really up for that. They're going to look past Elon, Phoenix in a tight one. I'm going to take Elon to win it. Number seven, 10 yard line, number 17, Villanova at Albany. Love the ground game from the, the Wildcats. Uh, three rushers over 150 yards. They really two rushers over 200 yards. They really kind of spread the wealth around. Four ball carriers, 28 or more carries. I mean, it is a little bit of a ground and pound. And by the time you look up, Connor Watkins is thrown for 739. You look at their opponents, and Nova they knock off Lehigh, Colgate, Rhode Island. They beat uh, pretty handily. Lost to Central Florida. Albany, I got a chance to watch a lot of because I heard a lot of new words, uh, combination from a Thundering Herd fan and Robert Harper on the way back, in which Marshall had to squeak out a victory against Marshall, who just knocked off Virginia Tech. Can you say the quarterback's name without looking up? Because it looked like it was wrong. Um, oh, shoot. Because uh, it's, it's another great name because they had Jeff Undercuffler for a while. Undercuffler was my dude, but anyways, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, I don't remember off the top of my head. Poffenberger. Poffenberger, yes. Oh, it's such a great name. So, Reese has thrown uh, 682 yards, seven Reese touchdowns, two INTs, and I'm seeing the Great Danes um, against Marshall. Again, Marshall's kind of turned the corner, and I thought, okay, maybe they'll get Hawaii fits. They did not really. And I thought, okay, they're going to steamroll Morgan State. No, they needed overtime to roll through Morgan State. It's tough. I really want to go Great Danes because I just like the quarterback. They always have great quarterback names, and I enjoyed them. But uh, I'm, I'm going to play it safe and take the favorite. I'm going to take Nova. Nova makes a statement win. This is this. They go on the road and they pound this team. And they said this is this, this is our conference now. JMU's gone. We run this show. This is this is the moment that Mark Ferrante's Villanova teams have been waiting for for a long time. Really, ever since he took over in 2017. This is the moment that they've really waited for. The 21 team was pretty good, but this is this is when it, it, it really sinks in. Hey, 
you you don't you don't mess with with Villanova. Uh, they're going to win this game. They they can win this game by a lot. They're going to beat North Carolina A and T and Greensboro by a lot, and that's going to set up a big clash with the Phoenix. And I think they win that one too. I and if they don't lose, if they win that game, then I don't know that they lose one until November. I know they already lost to UCF, but I don't think they lose another one until November. Goal line number four Idaho at number sixteen Eastern Washington. Uh, this is another doozy. And Massey says, "Where is Matt? Idaho, fifty-three percent to win, thirty twenty-eight projected final score." Well, I did not take the home team last week, Idaho, and it made me pay for it um, against Sac State. And you look at them, both kind of similar. They I mean, played some big games. Obviously, Eastern Washington opened up. North Dakota State uh, got thumped. Uh, Fresno State lost in double overtime. Beat Sella. Got a win over UC Sella's Davis game, last right? week. Southeastern, Southeastern has not won a game this year. And then UC Davis, I think that's a good win. You look at Idaho, and, of course, they had the, the two FBS games, right? Yeah, they beat Nevada, Nevada, and then they lost to Cal. Yeah. We all picked Idaho over Nevada, which is, again, still a train wreck, by the way. People were calling that one in, like, June. Yeah, that's – they're just a train wreck. But uh, has Eastern Washington shown me enough the last two games? Idaho's riding high, and sometimes I like when a team wins a massive game and then immediately has to play another game and on the road instead of home. I think you can catch a team, and so that's what I'm going to go with. The Eagles at home are going to catch Idaho feeling really good about themselves, coming off a big win against Sac State, who was a little bit of the darlings last week. Now Idaho is in their shoes, and Idaho probably felt slight a little bit. I was reading some things where a lot of people were thinking, you know, Idaho wasn't for real. Sac State was the team that was going to roll them, and I think Idaho probably leaned into that a little bit. Now it's a little bit different, right? I think they're probably – feeling good about themselves and probably hearing, hey, you know, East Washington's lost a couple, but they hit North Coast State, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to take the Eagles at home. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of pause there. Okay. Um, I like that pick. I do think uh, this team is better than I was willing to give them credit for preseason because Kekoa Vesperis has been re- has been pretty good quarterback. And that's the biggest thing that they were missing last year. Gunnar Talkington didn't get the job done. And how are they going to move on from Eric Berrier? Well, it took them a year, but I think they figured it out. This game is close. I think this game is competitive down to the wire. Do not let the final score fool you. Idaho scored a scoop and score on the final kickoff after hitting the, the which what was really the game-winning field goal. They added a touchdown with zeros on the clock on the final kickoff return. So I look at that and say that was a pretty competitive football game. You're going on the road. You're playing another pretty competitive team and a pretty competitive football game. Should be a good crowd. That hideous red turf. But I think the Vandals get it done. Give me Idaho in a tight one. This is a very, very tight football game. It is down to the final couple of possessions. So before we do the, the extra pick, yes. extra pick, Southern Conference games. There's three of them. Western Carolina to Citadel. Citadel actually holds the all-time. Still in that one, but Western Carolina is going to win by 40. Yeah, it's going to say 50. So we're, we're same line there. Um, Chattanooga Wofford. Wofford actually owns the all time series, but again, Chattanooga is going to win by 35. But maybe 
up because Maybe Robert's not 35, a little better defensively. Uh, 24. Yeah, 24, okay. So we're in agreement there. VMI Big finally one. got a win. Rocco's all excited about it. Mercer's had a, some up and downs. Is this the game where offensively they kind of put everything together? I guess that's my question. Do you think this is the game that Mercer can put some stuff together? And if they win by, let's say, three or four touchdowns, does that change your opinion on Mercer? Or if it's a 17-14 win, Mercer, are you still kind of head-scratching? I think Mercer is better than they were week zero. I still don't know how good they really are because PV is still a bit of a roller coaster. But he has really good chemistry with Ty James. I think their defense is better than the final score against Furman will give them credit for because they got put in a bad spot by a muff punt right at the end of the first half, and Furman went bang, bang, end zone, and that was the backbreaker because it was 17 rip at that point, and you're like, well, this is over. Uh, the... Um, I, I think Mercer has improved over the last few weeks, and I do expect them to win this game. I do expect them to win it fairly comfortably. I need at least a two-score win, though, for me to feel like this team is going places. VMI is also better than any of us were willing to give them credit for at the beginning of the year. i got to tip my cap to Danny Rocco for coaching up that young team uh, to be a little bit more competitive and to get a conference win, which VMI did not do last year. So I still expect Mercer to win that one. That one's in, that one's in making, right? It is. It, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, you know, it'd be curious to see would there be a game? Uh, I'll be dumb and ask you whether there is a Southern Conference game that isn't ten or more. Uh, because I, you know, Western's going to be more than ten. Chad's going to be more than ten. I think Mercer's probably more than ten, and I'm guessing he's probably got Sanford more than ten. I don't be. Yes. Yes. I've got the chat Wofford is seventeen. Yes. 16 and a half. Uh, and then Western Carolina Citadel is similar. Yeah, so yeah. These, these all look like they could be pretty lopsided, and it's incumbent upon ETSU to make sure we don't have a bevy of blowouts in the SoCon this weekend. Okay. Anyway, didn't want to not touch on Southern Conference. All right. I'll let you pick the extra point first. Go for it. Uh, I'm really good at this. Uh, I'm going to tell you who I would like to take, and then they win. I'm forgetting to get to the Southern Conference. Uh, Other than that, I'm really going to tell you I should take this team. I'm going to do that this time. I saw one team off the bat. But you know what? I'm going to take it. And I'm going to take a team that got just absolutely embarrassed last week to a Southern Conference team. Charleston Southern. You're going to take Chuck Southern. Yes. This is where we've gotten in the Kennesaw State debate, which there's a lot of Kennesaw State haters that are Buck fans, and they're going to love this. But, boy, Kennesaw State. They really needed a big second half to do so. And then Chad Furman and Tennessee Tech have all knocked them off. I'm going the Buccaneers of Charleston Southern, North Charleston, if you will, to knock off Kennesaw State. Jonathan Murphy is trying to do everything he can, but they have, this is the first year they have moved away like a lot of teams after last year experimenting with the triple option and the flex bone and their center to try to figure out how to run it offensively. They're really not playing for anything. There's a lot going against them. They've lost three in a row. I'm saying they're going to lose again. And Charlton Southern is going to shock the Owls. Is it even, I guess it still would be a shock. I don't know if it's a major, major upset, but certainly it would be a big one for Charlton Southern. That one could prompt some real soul-searching in north, in the North Atlanta suburbs. 
could prompt some real soul searching. Yeah, because Bohannon, the right guy, if we're going to go. I mean, because I, mean, I, I was curious about Jacksonville State. I mean, when they heard they were going to FBS, immediately uh, fire coach hired Rich Rodriguez. Yeah. I mean, there, there could be a, hey, you, you've got us this far. It's the FBS, a little pat on the back. Thank you, Coach Bohannon. We're going to go. Yeah. I wanted to take um, – because I saw at first I saw something on ESPN that said Arkansas was a, uh, I think they were like a, a touchdown dog to Texas A&M, and I was like, oh, well that's that that's an easy yes, even though it's on a, it's on a neutral field. Arkansas travels well in Texas, and I think Arkansas is actually a pretty decent football team. That's a Jerry Dome, right? Don't they play that every yeah, year? Yeah, they're playing that. They're playing that Jerry's World. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but Massey says that game is going to be much closer than that, and it falls outside of the criteria for the extra points. So give me Indiana over Maryland in College Park. Is it College Park, Maryland? Yes, it is. Yeah. I can't remember if it's College Park or University Park, but that's, that's SMU. College. You're right. You're right. That's SMU. You're, 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 you're first in this team. Give me, give me the Hoosiers over the Terps. I don't think Maryland is all that good. I don't think either. But Virginia, Charlotte... Here comes Saturday night. Yeah, whatever. Towson's not that good this year. And Michigan State's train wreck. So, they ain't played nobody, pal. Oh, I want to I wanna hear your thoughts. Army to the American. Ross Dellinger says they are approaching the finish line on this. Not a fan. Army-Navy game would be a non-conference game, so they could potentially play in back-to-back weeks if they're the top two finishing teams in the conference. Independent of Keith. Oh, you gotta be kidding me!